Let's uh, read from Genesis 18. And I have to uh, make a confession at this stage. Um, initially, when we, I planned out the series, um, we decided, I decided, staff agreed that we would do chapter 18 in two studies. And I thought that would be simple, except I forgot to check the plan. And uh, we're going to do the whole um, sermon, uh, or the whole passage in, in one sermon. The sermon's going to be twice the length, so don't worry about that. Um, you'll get your money's worth tonight. No, it'll be the same length, but as I was doing it all week, I was saying, really should have split this into two. And of course, that was the original idea, but there we are. Um, I trust that despite that, in the sovereignty of God, this will be a blessing to you. I hope, I hope that even as we read together, we will be blessed. This is the word of God, Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, um, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quickly, he said, get three sifas of of fine flour and kneaded it and bake some bread. And then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and, and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought. After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, 
and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abram spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. We thank God for this very powerful word that he's given to us again uh, this evening. Uh, seven o'clock club, if, if any of you children are going out to seven o'clock club, it's now time to, to leave uh, for that and we wish you well. We'll see you soon again. Well, now if we've got Genesis 18 in front of us, let's um, get to our study. Um, and once again, let's pray, asking God to speak into our hearts and lives. Lord, we're very thankful for your word, and we submit to it, to the authority of it, and we pray that right now uh, you will write it on our hearts and minds, and that we will leave this place refreshed and confident in who you are. Speak, O Lord into our hearts and minds, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's about 12 noon. It's siesta time. The morning chores are finished, and Abraham is resting 
as he seeks protection from the blistering heat. Can you imagine the scene? He's at the entrance to his tent in the grove of Mamre. And looking up, he sees three men approaching him. And there's something very special about these three, especially one of them. And after tending to their needs, Abraham has a conversation with one of them. That's basically what this chapter is about. And there's two main sections, the two sections that I should have covered in two sermons, but we're going to do it in, in one. First of all, we have the visit of God to Abraham and reinforcing the promise of Isaac, the son. And then the second half is the disclosure of God to Abraham about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we will look at next week in chapter 19. So two sections, and they have two big questions, one each. Verse 14, look at the question, underline it. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then the second question, verse 25, will not the judge of all the earth do right? So those are, in a sense, the, the two questions that we're going to hang our thoughts on this evening. Uh, first of all, have we no sermon notes? Oh, here we are. Good. Excellent. First of all, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The visit of God reinforcing the promise of a son. And of course, the question is asked by the Lord um, himself. And it's a rhetorical question. There's only one answer. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, of course, there's some things that the Lord will not do. He will not lie. Um, he will not be unholy. And he will not make a square circle. There, there's things that are just he wouldn't be bothered with. But he is powerful enough to do all that he wills to do. And his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we can be sure and certain about that. In fact, we need to be sure and certain about that because time will reveal, time will reveal to everybody, to the whole world, to the whole cosmos, that there's nothing too hard for the Lord. But we're called to trust that promise and that statement right now as we wait for that final judgment, the final coming of Christ. No difficulty too great to handle. No trial too hard to solve. No broken life too difficult to fix. No sin too big to forgive. No sinner too hard to save. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Not a thing in his will. He made the universe out of nothing. Everything after that is easy. He converts the hardest of hearts. Some of you are proof of that. You were hard-hearted people, and look what he did with you. He fixes broken relationships. Maybe some of you are right in the midst of turmoil in your marriage or in your home or in your family circle. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Trust him, brothers and sisters, trust him. The issues that are in your heart at the minute, the issues that are maybe in your family, in the church, in the world, nothing is impossible for God if it is his will. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Really? We need to. We can. For nothing is impossible with God. We could be actually quoting Luke one thirty-seven. We'll shortly be reading that in the story of the announcement of the 
birth of Jesus or the upcoming birth of Jesus. The angel says those very same words to Mary. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Otherwise, there would be no virgin birth, no incarnation, no salvation, no forgiveness of sin, no heaven. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. In his will, he can do all things. We believe in this. And what we have here again is a a theophany. We've talked about this before. The Lord, you'll notice that capital letters, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the self-existent God. And he takes on physical form. He comes down to our level for a set and for a short period of time. The invisible God, in other words, becomes visible. He takes the initiative because we need him to take the initiative because we can't take the initiative. He seeks us out. He finds us. He speaks to us just as he does here to Abraham. And look at the response at verse 2. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Worship is the response. This is the only suitable response. Remember, he's 99 years old, and what does he do? He runs, and he bows down his face to the ground, his nose in the dirt. Because Abraham knows this is no ordinary man. This is God. And there's only one response that's right. There's only one way to worship, and that's to run and bow down eagerly, willingly, passionately worshiping. And that's what we're called to do, you know. It is quite depressing sometimes at the front looking down. I have to be honest. I see people yawn. I see people sleep. Now, you might say, that's my fault. But if we have a true view of God, we should be sitting on the edges of our seats We should be wanting to worship the true God who is here in our midst. And we shouldn't come reluctantly. It shouldn't just be, oh, this is a habit. This is what we do on a Sunday evening. This isn't tradition. We want to come and worship the true and living God and fall on our faces before him and adore him and love him. And we should never tire of that. Verse 3, he said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. This is a different word for God, Adonai, the sovereign one, the master, the ruler, the owner. If I have found favor, if I find grace in your eyes, let me serve you, verse 3. I want to serve you. You're my Lord, and I'm your servant. And here's the important thing, folks. If you are a true worshiper of God, in other words, if you get verse 2 right, if you are a true worshiper of God, you will be a true servant of God. But the order is important. I think as we come near to the end, we should not be a people content to sit on the sidelines and just observe things from afar. We should be a people, and we should be saying, God, I have to worship you, and I have to serve you. Here's an observation. 
I suppose as I get older, I might get a wee bit bolder, and I've noticed more things. The older you get, you notice things. Here's what I've noticed. So many so-called born-again Christians seem to me to be reluctant to worship and unable to serve. Reluctant to worship and unable to serve, and they're both linked. Let the, works, let the word speak, folks, to our hearts tonight. We should be queuing up and saying, I want to worship. And I want to serve. Verses 4 and 5, he basically says, come, I, I, I will serve you. Uh, rest yourselves. I will provide food and, and water. And, uh, and I want to clean your feet. Ordinary acts of service, you know. Not very glorious things, preparing food and washing feet. And some of us would say, oh, really? I mean, do you expect me to wash feet? Me to, you know, to serve food? But actually, I think of um, somebody called Jesus. He was good at washing feet, wasn't he? And he's also good at feeding people. Hmm. Worship and service. They go together. And the verses 6 to 8, there he is. We can't read all the verses all the time, but notice the word he's hurrying again. He's, um, so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah, verse 8. And then verse 7, he ran to the herd. Oh, he's, he, is, he is passionate about this. He is up for this. Bread, tender calf, curds and milk, an absolute feast. This is an immense amount of effort in the heat of the day. Expense and urgency, all for Yahweh, the Lord. He deserves it, doesn't he? Not the leftovers. And then at the end of verse 8, you'll see, while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Humbly, Abraham takes the place of a servant. I'm not worthy to eat with you. I, I, I can't sit down with you, but I'm here to meet your needs. Constant state of readiness, constant state of urgency. That's what Yahweh deserves. And these opportunities are before us in this broken world that we live in to serve, to bless, to help to reach out, and we should take them, shouldn't we? Verses 9 and 10, I suppose the, the purpose now of this visit is becoming clear, at least one of the purposes. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. The eternal God once again comes and he reinforces and he repeats his promise. He brings a kind of a double assurance. The double assurance, first assurance was in chapter 17. Now he repeats it, chapter 18. He keeps his promises. Abraham and Sarah. And verse 11 reports the facts that we, that we have well known now. We're already old, well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. 
Sarah was eavesdropping in a kind of hidden way. I suppose that's the only way you do eavesdrop, isn't it? She was hiding, and she says, I'm past it all. I mean, come on, really? Verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself, and she thought, after I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have his pleasure? She's menopausal. That's what she's saying. I'm past all that. That train has long gone. It's left the station. It's away. It's not going to happen. She laughs into herself. Impossible, absurd, bizarre, ludicrous. It's easy to doubt, isn't it? How many promises has God made to us? And I can assure you, it's very easy to doubt every single one of them. It's easy to question the promises and the power of God. And you know what? Sometimes we can do it secretly. We can do it secretly. In the sense that on the outside, we can give the appearance of, I'm a trusting Christian, but inside, we're full of anger or doubt or worry. As we practice our faith, brothers and sisters, we need to learn to walk in faith and believe His promises and trust in His power. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. We can say it, but we have to engage it. We have to get it from the head into the heart, into our very soul. We've got to believe it. So what does the Lord do? He asks two questions. Uh, Verse 13 is the first one. Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? It's interesting that um, this was a, notice it was a, a, she laughed to herself. And this was a kind of, probably rolled the eyes or chuckled to herself. It probably couldn't have been heard, but the Lord can read the heart. He can read all our secrets. I found a laugh, but God heard it. God read it. Why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? We cannot hide anything from him. We can't. We shouldn't even try. There are no such things as secrets in our lives hidden from God. He reads our hearts. He reads our inner minds, our good and bad thoughts. One of the commentators quoted Tozer. Tozer's always worth quoting. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. He can read it all. He knows it all. That's why he's Yahweh, you see. That's why we love him. And that's why we should trust him. The second question there you'll see in verse 14 
or this, yeah, the second, yeah, is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. The answer, of course, to that question, is anything too hard for the Lord, is um, obvious. There's nothing too hard. But again, do we believe that? Or do we have some or many lingering doubts? I can't reckon we can go through the, the world with all its brutality, with all its harshness, with all its pain and suffering, and not have some questions. Take evangelism as an example. Do we believe that God can revive His church? Do we believe that He can bring many to repentance and faith? Do we? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Or what about our, our country, a fallen and broken as it is? Do we believe that His gospel can change people, can change families, can change churches, can change our very country, the very DNA of who we are as a people? Is it possible to reform our lives, our churches, and our doctrine? Is it possible? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You see, there's a danger for us um, that we can become small in our praying, narrow in our praying. Not my will, but yours we pray. And that's a good prayer. Of course it is. It's a prayer of Jesus. It's a beautiful sign of humility. It's a beautiful sign of submission to His plan and to His sovereignty. And yet, we can let that stop us praying big prayers, expecting impossible things. You see, God loves to do impossible things, like having a 99-year-old and a 90-year-old have a son. He likes to do things like that. He can do things like that. Not always, but he can. So why don't we just ask him? Why don't we ask him a wee bit more? Why don't you come on Friday morning and ask him? Together with others. What about Wednesday night? Our prayer meeting. Just come and ask boldly for God to work in our families, in our community, and in our church. We've got to ask ourselves, what has he promised us? He promised Abraham and Sarah's son. The time and the date and the sex and the name were all revealed beforehand. That's handy, isn't it? But why did both Abraham and Sarah doubt and laugh? What has he promised you and me? Well, let's take one thing, or maybe two. Forgiveness of sins, as an example. Has he promised us forgiveness of sins? Through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel. So why is it that we live in shame sometimes? I mean, why is it we don't enjoy a clean conscience? Why is it we can't live in the freedom that he has bought for us? Is it actually that maybe we don't really believe we're forgiven? Because forgiveness is beautiful and powerful. Or will be heaven. He's promised us heaven, hasn't he, when we die? So, why is earth so attractive to us? 
why, why do we lay up so much treasure here on earth and now? And why do we seek perfection today rather than waiting for it in heaven? See, God makes us promises and expects us to believe them and to continually believe them and to work hard at believing them. He wants to teach us that He can change us radically. He can do what is seemingly impossible, like forgiveness of sins, like the gift of heaven. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Verse 15, Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. As one of the commentators said, she's caught with the hand in the cookie jar. Caught red-handed and she lies. She denied that she laughed. She denied that she doubted. But don't we do the same? Don't we do the same? We pretend he doesn't see. And sometimes we hope he doesn't care. But he wants us to be free. And he wants us to be confident. What has God promised you? Is anything too hard for the Lord? If your answer is yes, then you need to get to the real Lord, because that's not the Lord of the Bible. And if the answer is no, is anything too hard for the Lord? Did I get that right? Yeah. If the answer is no, then get on with life confidently in Him. Get on with it. Be free. Be faithful. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. Here's again what one of my sources said. If we try and hide or cover up our sin, God will expose it. But if we bring our sin out into the open and confess it, he will cover it up. I thought that was actually... Quite beautiful. It's the paradox of forgiveness, isn't it? If we hide our sin, like, oh, I did not laugh, he will expose it. Oh, yes, you did laugh. But if we can learn, just learn to confess it, he hides it. He takes it away. And he sets us free so that we can be whiter as snow with a slate wiped clean, and with a clear conscience. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Second question, will not the judge of all the earth do right? If you're worried, the second half is shorter than the first half, okay? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Verse 16, Mamre was on an elevated site about 3,000 feet up, so you could look down over the valley where the, the towns of Sodom, Gomorrah, and a number of others that we'll be thinking about next Sunday night. And basically, what we're told here is that the sin of Sodom was not being ignored by God. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. 
Sin is not overlooked by, by God in any situation, any generation. Um, I think sometimes we think maybe God's a wee bit like... Um, this just came to my mind there. You, you, children, when they play hide-and-seek, where, where children, when they're playing hide-and-seek, they just stand still and cover their eyes. They close their eyes and cover their eyes, and they think they're invisible because they've done that. Do we sometimes think that because God cannot see us, that he cannot see that we sin? It's crazy, isn't it? It's illogical. He can see. He does see. Verse 20 and 21 describes the grievous sin of Sodom. The outcry is loud. And today in our land, God sees the sin of our land, and some think that he's asleep. Some think he doesn't care. Some think, of course, he doesn't even exist. I mean, abortion, we keep raising that, and we will keep raising that. Somehow, does our world, our society, think that little human beings don't matter? Come on! Or what about injustice? That the rich can steal from the poor, and the poor suffer, and, and the rich get richer. Or sexual perversion, where the gift, the beautiful gift of sex, is completely and utterly perverted. Do you think that God does not see and God does not care? Just because He has not judged us yet, um, as He didn't judge Sodom and Gomorrah until the moment of chapter 19, doesn't mean He doesn't see and that He won't. One of the commentators, or some of the commentators, quote uh, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And Jonathan Edwards there in that great sermon likened uh, God's wrath like a river, a river of God's wrath with a dam holding it back. And the dam, of course, is made out of the love and the grace and the mercy and the patience of God. But the day of judgment will come, and the dam will burst, and judgment will flow, and all the world will, will know it. We'll see that next week in chapter 19. But in verse 17, God decides to tell Abraham what exactly he's going to do before it happens. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And then we're given two reasons why he tells him. Verse 18 is the first one. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. What he's saying there is, um, as Abraham is going to be a great nation himself, and all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through him, he should know what's going to happen in one of these nations, the nation in Sodom. So that's the first reason. It's an important one, but I think the second one is even more important, and that's verse 19. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. In other words, Abraham is meant to pass on the very important lesson of Sodom and Gomorrah to his children, to his descendants. This cautionary tale Abraham is supposed to share with everybody who follows after him. He will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is like a covenantal obligation, isn't it? We're seeing this over and over again. It's not just about me in my wee small corner. Actually, it's about the family of Abraham 
and his descendants, and their descendants, which we're part of, by the way, if we are in Christ. But what he's to warn them, and what I need to warn all of you tonight, is what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah will happen to you and me and to us if we abandon God's will and reject his way. And Abraham's chosen to be that instrument of warning and directing. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. And parents, can I say to you tonight, this is your responsibility given to you by God. You're chosen for this purpose, to command, to teach, to direct children. And those of you who are Sunday school teachers or youth leaders, or those of you in ministry, God has chosen you, yes, He's chosen you to direct His children and God's children to keep the way of the Lord and not end up like Sodom and Gomorrah. And place tonight, Jeff's going to be teaching the young people about lust and divorce. Isn't that right, Jeff? Yeah. Two very important subject matters. And and we say to Jeff, Jeff, teach the Bible. Teach the Bible to them. And those of you who are young, you've got to listen. You've got to listen to what God says and keep the way of the Lord. Here's what one of the commentators says. The destruction of society that we see all around us would be quickly corrected virtually overnight if fathers and mothers would simply do what fathers and mothers are commanded by God to do, which is to command their children to keep the way of the Lord. Sounds simplistic? But imagine in every household, the children were taught by mom and dad to keep the way of the Lord. Then the mess of our society would be eradicated and corrected virtually overnight. Verse 20 and 21, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The awful condition of Sodom, so reminiscent of today. David Wells writes this again, quoted one, I think it's in the Kent Hughes commentary in Genesis. This is what he says, There is so much violence on the earth. The liberated search only for power. Industry despoils the earth. The powerful ride roughshod over the weak. The poor are left to die on street grates. The unborn are killed before they can ever see the rich and beautiful world that God has made. Doesn't this? And this is becoming true. The elderly are encouraged to get on with the business of dying so they might take their places, and I could add in, and their money. The many forms that violence takes in our world provide stunning reminders of how false have been the illusions about freedom with which we have for two centuries been enticed in the West. We have been promised so much by the liberal voices of liberal governments and liberal philosophies, and it's created chaos and pain. And the tragedy is that those who should be terrified about this don't believe. And they do not fear. But they will find that judgment is coming. 
verse 21, there's going to be inspection of Sodom, not because God is ignorant. I'm trying to cover everything. I, can't, I know I can't cover everything in detail, but it's important. God's not stupid. He's not ignorant. But the two angels go to Sodom. We're going to pick that up in chapter 19, verse 1 next week. And, and in the meantime, the Lord speaks to Abraham, a one-to-one. Imagine a one-to-one with Yahweh. And Abraham speaks and intercedes, verse 23 and 24. Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Oh, he pleads and he prays and he pleads and he prays and he pleads and he prays. He walked with God, now he intercedes before God. He pleads and he prays. Do we? Do we? And there's humility in his praying. He understands that God is big and that he's very, very small. Um, Notice verse 27. Now that I have been so bold. Verse 30. May the Lord not be angry. Verse 31, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord. Verse 32, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. He's pleading. He's praying. He does it humbly. But he's also bold. You see that? He keeps knocking the door, knocking and knocking and knocking. 50, uh, 45, 30, 20, right down to 10. He keeps knocking. Maybe next week we will think about why he stops at 10, but we'll leave that to next week. There's respect, yes. Humility, yes. Boldness, yes. Before he had shown much love and loyalty to Lot, now he's um, his, his nephew. Now he's thinking of strangers, the lost people of Sodom. And he prays boldly and he prays passionately. See, Abraham's convinced that God can do no wrong. His ways are perfect and just. And that's why he says there in verse 25, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And we can say, yes, he will do right. Alistair Begg quotes S.D. Gordon. Many times if you're a Begg fan, I know many of you are, you'll have heard this before. S.D. Gordon, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. And I think it's Begg says, in that distinction lies the difference between a rising and a falling church. If we understand that we are to come and plead before Yahweh, Verse 25 again. Far be it from you to do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right. God will always act justly. True justice will be served. It will be fair and correct and right. He will weigh all of us in the balance of his scales and will judge accordingly and punishment will fit the crime never too hard, never too heavy. 
To Abraham, by the way, in this passage, some people say, is Abraham trying to change the mind of God? No, he's not. That can't happen. And Abraham would know not even to try. This is about justice. It's about fair justice. But see this. Think about this. I mean, who is keeping the wrath of God from being poured out on Sodom that day and on our land today? Who's keeping, who's keeping the wrath of God from being poured out on our generation? I think verse 26 tells us, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. The world around us despises us despises God's message, ignores his laws, and rejects his gospel. But do you know we are the people who are keeping our land safe from receiving the wrath of God? His righteous people. We keep the wrath from flowing. And despite this, the world hates us. (laughs) It's the true church of Jesus Christ and the true message of Jesus Christ. But he's patient. And he holds back for the sake of his people. But one day that'll end. The world will get what it deserves. The world will receive far more good from God than it actually deserves. And I suppose the question, the silly question, and often asked question is, why does evil happen to good people That's not really the question the Bible puts out there. The Bible always asks this question. Why do good things happen to anyone at all? Sodom and Gomorrah didn't get worse than they deserved. Nobody does. And nobody will. And how do we know? Because God sent His Son the only righteous one, to be nailed to the cross so that people like you and me and the people we know and love, our neighbors and our friends, so that they might be saved. That's our message. That's what we glory in. And that's what we must take to the community around us. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Will a judge of all the earth do right? Yes. Let's get that into our heads and into our hearts and let's live in the light of these great promises. Lord, thank you for just blessing us with so much stunning, relevant truth as we live in this broken world. And we ask God, grip our hearts And may we be earthed in Scripture and in the power of your Spirit. And may we live for your great glory. Lord, have your way. Do the hard things. And yes, for the glory of your great name, one day, come again and judge the living and the dead. We ask it for your glory. Amen.